So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the December 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation about a growing technology. My first guest today is Dr. Subroto Paul, Associate Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery in the Division of Thoracic Surgery, with a secondary appointment in Health Policy and Research at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Weill Cornell Medical College. He'll be reviewing his article, Comparative Effectiveness of Robotic-Assisted Versus Thoroscopic Lobectomy. Dr. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today is Dr. Malcolm DeCamp, Professor of Surgery and Chief of the Division of Thoracic Surgery at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. He will be reviewing his accompanying editorial, Robotic Lobectomy and the Principles of Technology Diffusion. Dr. DeCamp, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. It's great to be here. All right, guys. Well, hey, let's let's start off. Um, Subroto, tell us, you know, why did why did you even do this study? I mean, uh, ten thousand billboards and radio ads and TV commercials can't be wrong. Robots are better, aren't they? <laughs> well, I mean, if you really look at uh, you know what's what's out there in thoracic surgery, the two things that's kind of I think for me, uh, looking at it in the past ten years, from being a medical student to being a resident to it to an attending is uh, is you know basically minimally invasive surgery everything that used to be done as a you know large incision is now done through little little small incisions whether it be like you know things in the abdomen like uh, pancreatectomies some people are even doing hepatectomies liver resections with them um, to things in the chest and now then you know then an added complexity to it is this new technology of using a robot to do it which is supposed to be a uh, technology where you have much more fine movements and what I wanted to see is that you know there's, there was a, prior to this paper there was all this literature on, and work done on uh, the GYN uh, end of it where they looked at uh, laparoscopic and robotic and open hysterectomies and they found that there there was some problems with the robotic version of it there didn't seem to be any benefit and uh, in, in for both the robotic and the laparoscopic stuff there's some evidence to say that if you start morselizing uh, you know, uteruses in, in the abdomen that you run the small risk of spreading sarcomas around. So I wanted to take a look at uh, a large sample of, of patients in the United States and see, hey, how does the, the nation do it? We know that select centers who have, you know, very good thoracic surgeons who have a lot of experience with minimally invasive technology or robotic technology can do it well. I just wanted to see what the cross-section, uh, how it looks in the United States and its adoption in three years. And uh, and I used a nationwide inpatient sample. Our group used a nationwide inpatient sample to take a look at that. And that's kind of where I wanted to see it. And, you know, you would tend to think that, uh, you know, our, as a society, we're fascinated with new technologies. Like uh, my wife has the iPhone 6. I just bought a <laughs> Mac Mini. Um, <laughs> You know, when they were when I was looking at a car, the guy offered me a, you know keyless ignition. He's like, oh, you just press the button, it turns on your car. Uh, so we're fast, and I got all those things. So I, I'm fascinated with new technology, just like everybody else, and I wanted to see if there's a real benefit that you know patients would get from from the robot. So that's what was my real impetus to kind of look at this uh, technology. Well, then take us through. Take you know, uh, what'd you find? So, you know, uh, what we did was we looked at three years of data from 2008 to 2011 with a nationwide inpatient sample, which is a 20% sample of all the hospitals in the United States, uh, hospital admissions in the United States. Um, and we, we basically tried to adjust for, adjust for comorbidities and, and hospital factors. And we found that patients who underwent a robotic lobectomy 
compared to a minimally invasive thoracoscopic lobectomy, there wasn't much of a difference in terms of length of stay or mortality or overall complications, although as specific complications there were, uh, were higher when everything was kind of adjusted for, was bleeding risk. Uh, it was almost twice as high. And we also found... And that's with uh, the robot. That's with the robot. With, that is with the robot, correct. And we also found that the robot costs, uh, you know, about $5,000 more than uh, having a minimally invasive thor- thoracoscopic lobectomy. So, I mean, I think the caveat to this thing is that this is the early experience. It just shows that it's, uh, you know, it's experience from 2008 to 2011 when a lot of people are probably early in their learning curve. And, you know, you, you know with any new technology that you first start using, you're going to see some problems. And this is what we found, at least in, uh, in, from the data from 2008 to 2011. Um, and, you know, the cost people have already, you know, it's not unexpected. The, you have to, you know, you have to buy different types of instruments. Do you have to get, there's the cost of the robot itself. Um, and so we're, it's not unexpected that it would cost a little bit, that it would cost more than having a minimally invasive one. Um, I think, you know, and Dr. DeCamp, I think, commented on this on in his uh in his commentary on his editorial where he basically kind of alluded to how VATS was in the beginning when minimally invasive uh, thoracoscopic lobectomy came out. Um, people also, there were questions about it. is it safer than an open lobectomy? Is there any real advantage? And people found, um, you know, initially that there were also bleeding comp- or increased bleeding complications with that technology when it first came out. But, uh, you know, over, it's been about a, a decade or more for thoracoscopic lobectomy, people have gotten good at it. And uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's just, this represents the early experience. And as people get more and more uh, kind of used to using this technology and the technology itself gets better, you know, some of the differences may go away. Uh, but at least currently, it seems like, uh, you know, in its current manifestation and this early experience, you see that there is a little bit more bleeding and there's really no, there's, uh, there's no obvious advantage to it. I was, yeah, I'd love to hear both of your comments, uh, Matthew, as well, from the perspective of, I guess I think you both wrote about this, um, you know, we're already pretty minimally invasive with the VATS approach. I mean, what is the robot, at least in theory, supposed to have added here, as opposed to when you, when you used the analogy of, of, you know, say, prostatectomy, where there wasn't a minimally invasive approach, and so this was a, a, a new frontier in that setting. Sure, I'll jump in on that a little bit. In that, um, you know, it, it's an, in my opinion, an example of timing is everything. And when you know, radical prostatectomy, uh, suprapubic or open, was the standard of care for resectable prostate cancer, um, that's that's akin to what we were all taught in terms of doing uh, thoracotomies and lobectomies uh, during the time that the robot was coming uh, into clinical utilization, there were a few very good laparoscopic surgeons that could do a laparoscopic prostatectomy, but it was it took quite a bit of advanced laparoscopic skill. And some of the uh, interesting and transformative technologies about the robot uh, made that operation in the pelvis in a narrow area um, something that was easier to teach and learn um, and therefore got disseminated a lot more quickly through first urology and then I think uh, gynecology so that it became more or less the minimum invasive platform of choice. At the same time, um, VATS 
uh, in the chest, um, had a good decade's worth of experience and diffusion through certainly first the academic community, um, so that there was a, a core group of people that were already quite comfortable doing vaslobectomies and anatomic lung resections. And so the, the, the robot is introduced as just an alternative, minimally invasive platform. And that's a that's a much um, higher bar to get over to say that this more expensive technology uh, as a minimally invasive platform is superior to um, uh, VATS. And, and as Subroto's uh, shown, it, it, one of the major outcomes, it was more costly. Um, and uh, with any new technology, there's going to be a bit of a learning curve, and, and arguably we did see that with VATS. And I think uh, as responsible surgeons, we have to look at the learning curve and, and look at those risks and decide whether they're acceptable and figure out ways to mitigate that whether it's with uh, credentialing, uh, proctoring, how you're going to um, get people started so that uh, that we protect the, the patients and don't subject them to increased risks. So I think those, that, that's sort of the fundamental difference between why this became the sort of minimally invasive platform of choice in the pelvis and not, at least at this point, uh, we haven't seen that happen in the chest. No, I agree with you completely, Dr. DeCamp. I think, you know, timing is everything, and, you know, you have a very a very good technique for doing minimally invasive lobes uh, with the thoracoscopic approach, and trying to supplant that with another approach is, uh, is you know, is challenging because, you know, if you're good doing it through three small incisions um, through a thoracoscopic approach, you know, doing it with the robot through, you know, at the same three or adding a couple of smaller incisions doesn't really make sense. But the one thing I would add is that um, what you had wrote in your editorial about how the one useful thing about the robotic approach may be that it's, since it's so similar, uh, some of the techniques are so similar to the open approach, it may facilitate the adoption by people who haven't, you know, embraced thoracoscopic or fast approaches yet. Um, and, you know, for I think the country, it's only about 35 to 40 percent at most of the country uh, of the surgeons actually, of the lobectomies done in the country are done thoracoscopically. And the question is whether robotics uh, or whether improvements in robotic technology would would help kind of facilitate that and increase the resection rates, at least minimally invasively. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, again, I think it's timing, and um, you, you talk about, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, we're certainly beyond the um, innovators and the early adopters of VATS into the sort of, uh, we've, I think we've reached more of a tipping point um, in terms of just more more thoracic surgeons comfortable with uh, standard VATS approach. Um, that was clearly not the case in urology, um, and at this point, if you don't, have you know a, a robot in in your institution? You're really not a player in prostate surgery. It's just right. kind of a non-starter. I'm not sure that's quite the same. There's been, uh, if you look at the STS database, in terms of the percentages of open versus you know vats lobectomies, it's now probably greater than 50 percent. But obviously, that's enriched for academic general thoracic surgeons. Um, we still have a, an interesting issue in the United States, and it's hard to get a number on this about how how much thoracic surgery is done by people that aren't trained like we are in terms right. of board board training and, and cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, certainly, when I finished, uh, more than 50 percent of the thoracic surgeon thoracic surgery in America was done by non 
thoracic surgeons, general right. surgeons, and that uh, hadn't gone on to do more formal training. I think that's probably changing, um, but it, it's a hard number to drill down on. You may have some insight of that from your your public work in uh, public health, but. It seems like the numbers are, if you look at a nationwide perspective, uh, at least for lobectomies, about 35% are done minimally invasive, and still less than 50% of all thoracic surgical procedures, pulmonary resectional procedures, are done by uh, board-certified thoracic surgeons. So and that's kind of amazing, and I don't think that the general public knows that, and I'm not even sure all the membership of, AC, of uh, the, you know, the college of chest physicians right. knows that. Um, some of that has to do with you know rural uh, access to care, um, but um, I, I think there there's some folks that looked at you know almost the entire population is within um, a couple hour drive from a board certified thoracic surgeon. Um, right. you know, whether they're willing to drive that far or pay the park is another issue. Park is expensive in New York. <laughs> exactly, same in Chicago too. Subroto, I was wondering, did did the data allow you to at all to to track down at the level of the individual physician so that over the three-year period, if you could track um, any decline in their complication rate. So if we're, if we're going to invoke, you know, that this is a learning curve phenomenon, is there a way then to track that, hey, I'm, I am getting better, uh, you know, as this proceeds forward? So, uh, unfortunately, this database, the nationwide inpatient sample, doesn't allow you to do that uh, because all the surgeons are de-identified. So you can't okay. really track it, and you're sampling also from year to year. So it may be that whatever hospital that that surgeon practices is just not sampled in the subsequent year. Uh, gotcha. But that is an interesting question and actually some, a question that I'm trying to look at using another these state databases such as uh, the New York State Sparks database or the California database, trying to look to see um, at what volume threshold does an individual surgeon's risk-adjusted morbidity or mortality kind of plateau. And uh, you can do it in those databases because you, you can actually track individual surgeons. But that's, but that's an excellent question, and I think that's a question in regards to surgeon training for any new technology that is kind of unknown. What is the ideal volume that you need to do to, before you become you know, uh, proficient at something? I think another interesting um, finding in, in uh, Dr. Paul's paper was the sort of profile of the institutions that were adopting robotic uh, approaches to yeah. a lobectomy, uh, at least during this early adoption period. And it was interesting both geographically and kind of the profile, and he may want to elaborate on that. Yeah, we found that uh, it's, you know, it's, it turns out that it's, uh, uh, it's smaller, you know, there are a lot more smaller hospitals uh, who in, in the south and west who are really adopting uh, robotic technologies as opposed to larger teaching hospitals or more urban centers. And, you know, you can speculate as to why that was the case, but one of, you know, some of my uh, co-authors thought that it could be because of marketing pressures, that if you're a small hospital and you're competing against a, an academic tertiary care center, that uh, one thing you can say is that, look, we do the latest as well, and look, we do the robot. And that may be, a, uh, you know, some marketing pressure causing smaller institutions to kind of adopt this technology first. Um, that's one explanation. The other explanation is it may be that it's just if you're in a smaller institution, it just may be easier to get new technology in. Um, I think back to laparoscopic cholecystectomies, and you know, is it kind of developed and driven almost 
by the pr private practice community initially before it got adopted into the uh, more into the academic setting. Um, so it's it's hard to know, but that's what we did find. So uh, it was an interesting finding, and uh, it, it's uh, it, you know it, you can speculate as to why that was the case. I don't know if you have some thoughts about that, Dr. DeCamp. Well, I think the, I think both the, the pressure to differentiate yourself in a market is, is if you're delivering healthcare, and we tried to point that out in our editorial that there, it's not just the provider looking at the technology. It's you know the the customer is the health system or the hospital. Um, there are secondary gains like marketing advantages, and I think the company since the, the, the elephant in the room in robotics is that there's only one vendor. Um, and so there's no competition, um, you know, in, in that particular market. So it, it's a very expensive technology because they don't have any competition. Um, so it takes the capital cost to get started are substantial. Um, and if you're going to invest in a, in a robot, um, you, you need you sink a lot of money, and you need then to make sure that you know it's getting used appropriately. And in smaller institutions, it may take a more diverse group of surgeons that are going to use it, whether it's not going to just be the, the urologist and the gynecologist. You need some other folks to help you, you know, justify that, that investment. So there's a lot of um, unexpected, you know, incentives around adopting this new technology that are potentially above and beyond, you know, the, a careful look at safety and efficacy. I'm curious to do in both of your practices, you're both obviously uh, in high-volume centers, um, do you do many robotic lobes yourself? And if you do, what, what is, what's the driving clinical principle that makes you today to say, I'm going to do this one robotically versus a standard thoroscopic approach? Or maybe you do, neither of you do robotic surgeries based I'll on... I'll let Sobroto take that one first. Sure. Uh, so, we do, so as a group, Anna and myself, we, I do robotic, robotic surgery using the DaVinci platform. I've uh, started it about maybe, I would say, two years ago. I initially used it for mediastinal work, so for doing a thymectomy, thymoma. Uh, I found it to be actually very useful uh, for doing it. Uh, probably I could do the same stuff, uh, same degree of work with that, but it, was, it seemed to be, at least with the robot, a little bit easier, and it may be because we were using CO2 or the visualization is excellent. So for the sound work, our, I and my entire group try, actually use a robot for it. Recently, we've been starting to do lobectomies with it. Um, I'm very comfortable with thoroscopic lobectomy, and you know, uh, and as a group, you know, we're we're very proficient at it. Robotic lobectomies, uh, we found, is you know, it's it's early in our learning curve, and we've been using two attendings to do it, and we we do a good job just as well as it is uh, thoroscopically, but it does take a little bit longer for us, and. The one thing that we found that you know that's different is that you really have to have a good assistant in a in a robotic lobectomy who can you know put the stapler in and carefully go around the pulmonary artery branches and and staple because as a surgeon you're not at the you're not at uh, the bedside you're at the cons uh, you know at the at the control on the uh, at the console the robotic console so. Um, it's not like uh, you know doing it with a resident where I'm at the bedside and if the the resident puts the 
the, the stapler in at that wrong angle and it's putting too much pressure on it, I, I can readjust them and say, no, don't do it this way and put it in this way. It, it's, I would have to scrub, you know, go get go away from right. the console and then re-scrub, go on to the thing, do it, and come back. People do that, so, but that's not ideal. So, you know, we find that currently we have two, two attendings or some very experienced fellow helping us doing with these cases. Especially for the pulmonary, for the lobectomies, where you know, you know, you, you, there's a potential for you know iatrogenic injury to these uh, to fragile pulmonary vessels. So uh, that's one difference that we've seen. Have we seen any difference in outcome? I don't see it. I see the length of stay seems to be about the same. Maybe the pain may be a little bit less, but you know. The, some of the patients are requesting robotic lobectomies, and it may right. be that it's, since they got it that way that they're, you know, it's some sort of placebo effect. Um, but what I do see is that the technology, it's like what I personally see is that it's like laparoscopic cholestectomy or any other technology. This, this technology is going to stay. It's going to get better. Um, they're, you know, coming with a stapler for the uh, robotic platform. Eventually there's going to be a competitor to them, and they're going to drive the you know, drive the competition Innovation. will drive the technology to to innovate, and you know I just don't want to be at the back end of of, of innovation. Where you know, I do think that you know, uh, for some uh, thoracic procedures, the robot may be ideal. Already, I do see it. It's ideal for the for me cell masses, at least in our in, in our experience. Dr. DeCamp, what do you back out Mac, Sure. Um, I think it's, uh, for the same reason it's good in the pelvis, I think it's good in the mediastinum for thymectomies and thymic work because you're extending up into the neck in a narrow area with thinner instruments and uh, degrees of you know, range of motion in the wrists of the instruments. I think it's good for that. I don't think there's any advantage for it in pulmonary surgery at all. Um, I do, personally don't do it. One of my partners does. There's certainly no difference in, in important outcomes. And um, I, you know, and I worry that unless you have your port placement perfect, you don't have that tactile feedback, and you can really, um, with this machine, pry up on ribs and and cause some injuries. So it's not. Um, it, to me, I don't think it's a superior platform for for minimally invasive lung surgery. Um, and, and I think it's an awfully high bar to think you're, I don't think you'll ever be able to do a randomized trial because I don't think there's equipoise amongst the right. people who do it. And so, we're, you know, we have an average length of stay, but, you know, just under three days for vatslovectomy, and it's going to take a lot of robotic lobectomies going home on day two to justify the cost. <laughs> right. um, I do agree with this, with uh, Soroto that I think with some competition in the space that they will innovate, that the the, the Costs should come down. A little competition is good for everyone, including uh, Intuitive. Um, that they have the technology now in house to incorporate a stapler. We have one PA who's trained to be the person at the field and place the stapler, and that works out fine. But it is intense, you know, and we can basically get two lobes done in a day in our robot room, but we can certainly get more of that done. Um, you know, in our regular room. But if you have a dedicated team, you can minimize the time it takes to dock and undock the robot. Um, so it, to me, it's another, it's just another technology platform that um, I think everyone should be doing minimally invasive pulmonary resections. And if that's the one you train on, I think it's fine. But I don't think it's superior to VETS, and I don't think 
that it will be ever be proven to be so. Yeah, I think it. Uh, I completely agree with you. There's, there, just like with the vats and open lobectomy trial, that can that'll never be done because it's just not equipoise among surgeons about what technology to say that they're equal to each other before putting them in a in a randomized trial. So, um, and I do agree that it's going to be very hard to show that the robot is is better because uh, the outcomes from vats lobes are so good. You know, the length of stay and complication profile. I'm struck by something you said, Sobreto, that you did, you know, you'll do a robotic lobe, like, you know, the patient requested it. It is fascinating to me the number of patients that come through our center, you know, secondarily for like a second opinion, et cetera, that have been, you know, wherever, and have had a, a, a thoracotomy, never had a thoracoscopic approach. That the, like the dissemination of a minimally invasive platform didn't seem to make it into the community, you know, lexicon, but man, the robot sure has, you know, that, you know, everybody seems to want the robot for even for things that no one's doing it on, you know. Uh, has that been both of your experiences? You know, this has just kind of become the, the hot, sexy new, the, it's the iPhone 7, you know. Well, I think it's sort of like, uh, and Kyle, you may appreciate this, laser. Right. <laughs> you know, if, if it's a cool word. It's, you know, it's, it suggests, right. you know, you know, new technology has to be better. But what this paper that Sobroto did, you know, demonstrates that if you look carefully at it, um, that at least during the during the learning curve, it's not necessarily better. It has a higher complication rate. And um, so how we thoughtfully adopt new technology is really the whole point of this. And I'm not trying to um, pour cold water on new technology. I think we all would like to see things get better and you know it's interesting 20 years into practice I do things that aren't at all like I was taught during my, my training at the Brigham you know everything is different um, and I think we have to continue to do that but just because it's new it doesn't mean it's better and we owe it to our patients and, and our colleagues to you know to look uh, as objectively as we can at it um, and tr- and not to be swayed by marketing and this company is very aggressive about its marketing to to the public and to physicians and to hospitals so far though i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead i was just going to say that it's uh, i agree and you know um there's so many billboards out there saying touting the robot or when i drive to work in the morning i hear uh you know, we're doing robotic this, robotic that. So I think, you know, patients hear it, they're aware of it, and that's why they kind of latch onto it. It's a, as Dr. DeCamp said, it's a cool word, robot. Right. It's, it, you know, you get an image of the iPhone 7. And, uh, <laughs> and I think, uh, but I do, uh, and I completely agree at that as physicians that we, sh- we have to offer patients what the safest, what we think is, the, the safest approach to you know giving them the the best care possible and the safest care poss- possible. So I think you, know, you have to kind of look at all of that in perspective before you offer something to somebody. I think so, it's, go ahead. No, no, one go thing ahead. to to um, get informed get informed consent from a patient and explain to them that uh, during your operation I will be in the corner of the room sitting at a console, you know, not touching you. Um, that's a counterintuitive thing to explain to a patient. 
Um, I, like, I like that your editorial described the fact that you know, the technology essentially was originally developed from the perspective of being able to operate you know, on someone in a battlefield far away. Oh, the DOD and uh, yeah. even the space program, they said, well, what if we have people you know, in the space station that get sick? You know, we can have surgeons on the ground you know, operating on them remotely. So and and the, you know and that was certainly the DOD's interest as well for keeping the um, surgeons you know out from away from the front lines of, of of a conflict. So it's interesting. Yeah, I think the other issue that the paper addresses is how do you really evaluate new technology and how and I think Dr. DeCamp you know applied this as well. And how do you explain it to the patient that you know I haven't done this before. I know how to do the procedure, you know, uh, using other approaches, but we haven't really done it using this technology. So, you know, getting informed consent and also evaluating the technology while it's in in use, what is the best way of doing it? Should there be registries for doing this? Should it be uh, some governmental agency overviewing it? I mean, the FDA has certain things like, for example, the MAUD database that looks at um, uh, dangerous situations that are self-reported by either patients, hospitals, or manufacturer itself. But is is that the best way? And I think they're, they also came up with something called FDA MedWatch, or Device Watch, where you know it's another way for kind of the consumer to get feedback about these uh, new technologies. So I think it's a you know writing the paper that was one of the things I thought about. It's like how how do you explain it to a patient? That this is where you know we don't have a great amount of experience with this, but this is what we're what we're what we're going to be doing, and uh, and also how as a medical society as a nation how do we evaluate all these new technologies that are coming out, whether it be a new drug, uh, a new medical device, uh, or a new surgical platform such as uh, the Da Vinci robotic surgery platform. And I think there's an analogy in the in drug development where there's more interest now in you know um, post market approval uh, registries so that you don't have these unintended consequences of approving something and then finding out to a year or two later that there were unintended consequences down the line. We know when we look at new technology, it often gets um, initiated and then and perfected in the hands of you know some super users that have excellent results, but that when you try to disseminate that, whether it's with a combination of medications or a new approach to taking care of a cancer, that the complication rates go up and the efficacy tends to go down. I don't know why it would be any different in the medical device world. Um, so I think we just need to be thoughtful and have some rigorous process uh, in place to uh, evaluate uh, things from certainly from a patient safety standpoint and then when we're looking at procedural efficacy you know it has to make sense we all have a responsibility to be cost effective in what we do and um, that's a challenge when with new technologies because new technologies are often expensive I'm curious if uh, if there's any uh, for lack of a better word standard out there of when you as a thoracic surgeon is uh, when you're ready to do a robotic surgery, does your hospital require X amount from a credentialing perspective, or is this lumped under the grand, you know, it's already, you already know how to do minimally invasive, and that's what this is, so it's, you know, for lack of a better word, you're grandfathered? Uh, certainly in our hospital, for you, you, there's a, you have to have 
documented experience with the robot, um, uh, you know, either from someone who is already credentialed to do robotics or from your training program. Okay. And if not, you have to be proctored by an approved surgeon. So, okay. um, you know, that that's the process we went through. I, I don't know at Cornell what their, what their credentialing issue is. We have the same uh, process in place where if you have no experience, you have to go through the Da Vinci training program and then be proctored for a, a multiple cases to do this, uh, to do anything robotically. And then you have to have a, a minimum threshold of robotic cases done every year to stay credentialed. The uh, uh, idea is to, at least in this institution, is to kind of avoid having dabblers, people who will just dabble right. in one case or not, and you'll just have people who consistently use the technology. Well, that, and I think that's important. hard to account for the learning curve if over time. When, when, when right, so. right. And there's a there's an in, there's a um, like a lot of things there's an individual learning curve and then there's the you know surgery is a team sport and there's a right. team learning curve in terms of anesthesia nursing um, and and your you know assistant whether you're having multiple attendings and things so um, it you can't easily do it in a training program where your assistant's changing every month you know right. people right. all have to sort of know their their roles and responsibilities so you. And that, and I think Intuitive does a good job of teaching that sort of team approach. Um, and you know, I think that kind of thing needs to be, you know, promulgated to any institution that's looking to get into this. Terrific. So, guys, we've been talking for a little while, and I want to make sure as we're as we're running out of time that there isn't something that we have forgotten to address, or any kind of final thoughts from either of you. Well, I think that. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the paper will be very. I hope the paper will be very provocative, um, and uh, uh, I hope it makes people pause and and, and think a little bit because um, I think it kind of people will gloss over. Oh, it's a little more expensive, but when you see that there was you know higher incidence of bleeding complications, I think that that people ought to sit up and take notice of that, and then. To me, that begs the question of, you know, how do we uh, be transparent about disseminating this information to patients? Right. So that it, it kind of, it's kind of the, the flip side of the the sexy billboard coin. Um, <laughs> check the back of the billboard you, out. Careful, <laughs> be careful what you ask for or wish for. It's not always a better mousetrap. Well, I mean, I think I, my my hope would be exactly the same as Dr. Camp, that it would raise some questions, and, and in general, about questions about transparency in medicine and surgery in general. You know, do you really know what you're getting into when you sign that dotted line on the consent form? And, uh, you know, I think as you know, consumers are very involved in every aspect of what they buy when they look at buy electronics, buy cars, should be for the same for their health care. There, there should be some transparency about it. And, and, you know, I think as a nation we're getting to that, and, you know, I would hope that, that publications like this would help address that as well. Perfect. What a great, what a great way to summarize it. Um, well, as expected, this was a fantastic discussion, and, and I, without a doubt very thought-provoking, and I was, I'm very glad that the two of you took the time to, to, to fill in our listeners a little bit more. Um, and obviously, if, if you, the people listening, if you have not read these papers yet, uh, please go and, and read them. They're, they're actually fantastic. Um, so, guys, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate this great discussion. 
Thank you, Carl. I think it's uh, very nice that the, uh, the chest and the American College of Chest Physicians was willing to devote the effort to this because at the end of the day, you know, the, our pulmonary colleagues are often the gatekeepers for these patients. And um, it's one thing to have a debate like this in a surgical forum where champions of one are going to argue with the champions of the other and there's no winner. But <laughs> I think uh, when you're talking from the perspective of gatekeepers and the people who are referring to surgeons, it'll potentially help them, you know, make better educated choices themselves in terms of their recommendations. So thank you. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Dr. Yeah, Kemp, it was great speaking to you uh, as well. Everybody have a great day.